Hello, I'm Karen Hardwick, and in addition to being a clinically and spiritually trained therapist, I am a leadership consultant. As a result of my work and my own messy and beautiful journey, I know that connection is the antidote. On this podcast, I talk with people, leaders from all walks of life, who embody connection to self, to amazing grace and as a result to others. My guests are those who bravely choose true connection, even as they walk through some hard times. They hold their stories and the stories of others lightly and lovingly with authenticity and grace, empathy and gratitude. They are the ones awakening, broken wide open into wholeness. We are all recovering from something and the sharing of our stories is all about connection not perfection. I have a chair here just for you. We are saving you a seat. Hey everyone, join us at the table this week as I talk with Melissa Clark, host of the podcast, Thrive, The Art of Living Free. We share our own experiences with mental health, how our larger culture encourages addiction, and why it is healing to experience seasons of silence, which is especially important as we move into winter. Join us. Hey, everyone. I am here today with my friend, Melissa Clark, who has a master's degree in counseling and biblical studies from Grace University, and she is licensed in the state of Texas as a licensed professional counselor and supervisor. So in addition to being an expert in all things therapeutic, Melissa also has a heart for the community. She speaks at schools, organizations, and businesses about anxiety, identity issues, and body image. And she's also the talented host of the podcast, Thrive. So you have to check that out because the subtitle of Thrive is Mental Health and the Art of Living Free. And who doesn't want to know how to live free, right? So she and her husband and their two children live in the Dallas area. And Melissa, I'm so glad we get to have this time together. Thank you for joining me. Yeah, thank you for having me. I'm really excited. Okay, so I'm going to dive right in. You have a front row seat to all things mental health. And as we know, and I'm sure a lot of our listeners know, but just in case they don't, or it's good to remind them, we are in a mental health crisis, right? All diagnoses up, suicide up, addiction up. People even who don't have a mental health illness are overwhelmed and stressed. Feels like we're unraveling from the outside in and also from the inside out. So talk to us about that. Like why? What's the biggest challenge? What's What in the world is going on? Yeah, I think through the pandemic, I think what it really showed us was how little control we really had. I think prior to 2020, we had the illusion of control. We had our systems, we had our ways, we had our toilet paper. Um, But then after that, everything became upside down. We didn't have the freedom that we used to have. We couldn't go out and do the things that we were used to doing. Our family was separated from us in in many cases. We were losing loved ones. 
And if you're any, if you have any sort of empathy, that's like my number one strength is empathy. I experience not only the trauma within myself, but also a collective trauma. And so those of us who suffer from anxiety, just the news became a scary place, but we needed to be informed, but yet there was a lot of fear. And then when there's a lot of fear with not a lot of certainty, we cope in unhealthy ways a lot of times. And that's why addiction went up. I mean, it's just a lot of things that were already there. We were all, think about like a fever. We already had a low grade fever, but then COVID hit, hit and it, our temperature just spiked. Yeah, that's a pretty powerful metaphor. And I completely agree with you. I don't think COVID caused this. I do think it's shown a light on all the things that many of us human beings had been pushing underneath the carpet and ignoring or in denial about. And if there's something good, and I have that in quotes, that could come out of a worldwide epidemic, it is a wake-up call. Like, wake up. We are suffering individually and collectively. And there's so few people, relatively speaking, who have coping skills to get us through this kind of huge crisis, right? Yeah. I know for myself, I had a lot of coping skills going into the pandemic, but during the pandemic, those coping skills were not accessible to me. Mm, like what? Like uh, like going to the gym, going out to friends, going and getting a massage, walking around a grocery store. Um, little things like that were no longer accessible. Yes, I had a you know plus an extra amount of time because I wasn't commuting. I wasn't doing all the normal things that I had been doing. But even that was like a huge disruption in my schedule. And so I know for, for myself, my anxiety, my depression, I'm, I'm back in counseling now because I'm finally at a point where I can say I, I'm not healthy and I haven't been healthy the way that I want to be healthy. And it's taken a toll on me meeting with clients and doing all the amazing things that I get to do. The past few years has been, I think, extraordinarily difficult for all of us, myself included. But I don't think it is, like you're saying, it's not the cause of our problems. It just really revealed a deeper need within each of us, myself included. Well, I think it's really important for those of us who are in these positions to go first and I've been talking pretty publicly, although I don't go into the gory details, but I've been talking pretty publicly about how I just returned from a 30-day treatment program for trauma. Yeah. You know, because, and I'm not going to say this is because of COVID, but it was time for me to go and do even deeper work on myself because life has a way of catching up to us. And I think that's really important for people to realize that saying I need help is a really courageous act. Mm -hmm. And it's an act that, you know, God wants us to do, right? There's help out here for us. Yeah, definitely. I think those of us who are leaders, especially, it's up to us to say, this is, I'm struggling, that's why I try and be super upfront with my clients, with my kids. I suffer from anxiety and depression. Therefore, these are the things I'm doing. I'm having a bad day today, so I'm going to go lay down and take a nap. I don't put it on them, but I let them know, like, I'm not a superhero. I'm a human being with 
flaws and needs and vulnerabilities. I think the more we can own that and say it in appropriate ways, same thing. I'm not going into all the details with people, but I think we need to know that like who we look up to and who we meet with and who we see, they're not perfect. I'm not trying to put this filter on myself. Literally, you can see my wrinkles. You know what I mean? That this is who I am and I don't have to be anybody that I'm not. And so a part of my mental health journey is seeing the way that God wired me, how he didn't wire me, and all the amazing ways that I need to care for myself. It takes a lot of courage to be this upfront because not everybody is open to it. And yet I do find that it is absolutely invitational. The more we invite people, now not everybody's going to take that invite, but the more we are honest about what we're going through, like when I talk about I needed to figure out how I could forgive myself for some things I needed to really look at. I needed to look at the role shame played in my life, how that was such a derailer in so many ways, although no one out in the public world really knew what was going on. So yeah, I think it's really important because my hope is that people will say, oh my goodness, you too? I thought I was the only one. Exactly. We, when we suffer, we, we suffer alone. And our shame tells us that we're bad, we're the only ones, we're the worst ones. And when you hear other people say, no, I'm struggling and this is what I'm doing, it opens the way and paves the way for other people to get help. I don't know the number right in front of me, um, but gosh, Karen, I think it's like 80% of us that if we're diagnosed with a mental health disorder, 80% of us don't get the help that we need. Yeah, what is that? That's sobering. Number one is it's very cost prohibitive. And that's why I try and have as many free resources as I can. But we don't always have access to care. There's not always, we don't always know that what we're, it can take, it took me a while to realize that what I was feeling was anxiety. Because anxiety isn't just about worry. It's a state of being. Mm -hmm. And if you're not in tune and if you don't have the labels and the names and the language, that's why I love Brene Brown's new book, Atlas of the Heart. It's not really that new, but she has identified 87 different emotions. If you don't have the language to put words around it. It's very hard to go to the doctor and say, here's how I'm struggling. But if that's what's happening within our heart, but we don't have the words, it can feel very difficult, almost like being in another country. How do you get help if you can't say, I need the doctor? Well, I love the feeling wheel. There's a feeling wheel that's oh, been yeah. around, right? Right, Melissa, for a long time where you can literally, there's you know over a hundred different feelings that can really help people move way beyond I'm feeling sad, happy, or angry. And I think that, I, I love that point that people are lacking the language to describe how they feel. And so what happens is that they're not getting the care that they need or people are not calling it what it really is. I know for me, when I feel anxiety, it definitely feels a certain way in my body. And so how about all the people who are disconnected from their bodies or who are so used to feeling a certain way that they don't even realize that there's a different way to feel? Or you've, ne or you've numbed it. Through well, social yeah. media, through alcohol, through drugs, through relationships. I mean, 
there's so many different ways to numb, but I think a lot of people don't even realize that anxiety because they don't ever really feel it. They're covering it up all the time. Well, I think that there's many more addictions than we, and people suffering from addictions than we realize. The numbers are huge right now. And yet I still believe that they're underreported because there's work addictions and there's sex addictions and there's pornography addictions. It's, it's not just the person who's picking up alcohol and drugs and using that as a way to numb that are the addicts. Exactly. And, right? And so we really need to be talking about this super honestly because people are burning down their lives, maybe slowly, but definitely burning down their lives. I think there's a lot of people who would disagree with me and I'm not even saying what I'm about to say is 100% correct, but I don't know that it's 100% incorrect. And that is, I think 100% of us are addicted to something. I think we just have an addictive nature. Maybe it's to Instagram, maybe it's to approval-seeking behaviors, but I think God created us to be completely dependent on Him. And I don't know anybody short of Jesus that walk that out perfectly. So I think all of us are addicted or codependent on, on people or things to get that need met and to calm those fears down whenever it was just meant to be done through the one. Yeah, well, you're not going to get any argument from me about that. <laughs> I think some people, some people would probably argue with you about that, but I'm all in because I do believe that we are at the least a distracted, numbing culture and that that can easily slip into addiction. And addiction is a, you know, a chronic progressive family disease, so everyone gets affected when somebody is acting out in a numbing way. And it's about giving up everything for one thing. Despite negative consequences. So if your family's angry with you because you don't put down your phone and their anger and their hurt is not enough for you to change your behavior... I would ask you to think about whether or not you're addicted to that phone, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and even things that we don't think about, like something I have always historically dealt with in my life is people-pleasing and approval-seeking behaviors. I, I want the gold star. I want the pat on the back. I want the good job. I want the affirmation because when I get that affirmation, it tells me that, I, that, I've, that I'm on the right path. That's not always... That's, rarely the case. If, if, I, if I'm putting my worth in the hands of somebody else, it's, it's a constant teeter-totter. And then I become addicted to what they're telling me about who I am. So I think even addiction doesn't have to look like a substance. It can, it can look like a feeling. It can. I mean, yeah, most people think about it in drugs or alcohol, but it, it's a whole, it can also be, and usually is a whole host of behaviors, which can include absolutely people pleasing. And when we stop people pleasing, people aren't pleased. No, it gets pretty quiet. I, I went through at time, I went through a workshop with Suzanne Stabile, who is, you know, the godmother of the Enneagram. And during one of the, the, cut the breakaway sessions, I had a chance to chat with her. And I said, you know, I'm a fellow too. She's a two as well. And I said, um, what do you do whenever you stop helping other people who are used to them being helped by you? 
She said it gets very quiet and it's a very lonely season. But once you find new people, it's very healthy and you can show up as your true authentic self, not needing to be needed, but being myself, not having to have pride or even being open about my vulnerabilities and my insecurities, my feeling of unworthiness. And so those pearls of wisdom, I think, have served me for the past few years. And so that's something I, I continually remember is if you don't show up for people and you don't do everything for them, it, it gets lonely. And it, not only does it get lonely, but well, let me put it this way. I'm learning also as a two that I would rather be alone than be lonely in a room of people. I would rather be alone than lonely in a room of people exhausted because I've done everything for them. Right. Sick and, and nobody's tired. done right. anything for me because that's the way it works. <laughs> well, and that's and that's an, when us twos are in an unhealthy place, that's where we go after all I've done for you, right? Like, here's the scorecard and let me show you and tell you. Yeah. Yeah. Because we're hustling for approval and we're hustling for our own worthiness. And what a relief it is to put all of that down as much as we possibly can, as often as we can. You wrote a really powerful blog that I was taking a look at on your website, and it's called What Almost Ruined My Marriage. So this is a good segue into that because it's the same kind of a theme, isn't it? I'd love for you to talk about that. You know, I I wrote that post because I am married to a wonderful person. We've been married for over 20 years, and we have two kids together Ethan, 14, Avery, age 11. But early in our marriage, even though he was so kind and helpful, I had all these expectations. I wanted him to anticipate my needs as much as I anticipated his needs. And I wanted him to do things my way. And spoiler alert, I mean, I'm sure your listeners can already tell him, I could be pretty controlling, you know, and it sucked the life out of our marriage because that doesn't feel good to feel like you can't do anything right. It was very defeating for him. So whenever I opened up and, and, and I saw like, okay, he's, he's so kind. He's so loving. There's really nothing. It's, this is not really a him thing. This is a me thing. And I need to accept him for being him and begin to accept me for being me. And let's practice openness and honesty in our relationship. And gratefully, we were able to do that at, at a pretty early age. And, and we've, we've had a lovely marriage after I realized what almost ruined my marriage. How did you realize that? That's a, a big epiphany. Oh, it takes a lot of courage. Was there anything that helped you to realize? I'm sure you didn't wake up one morning and said, you know what? I've been focusing on him as the solution, and this is all an inside job. I've got to look inside him. I don't think it happened that way. Like what happened? What was that process like? We dated for five years before we got married. And so we had, I mean, I I turned 18 and two months later we started dating. So my entire adult life, and in many ways we've raised each other, you know, because just because you turn 18 doesn't mean you're a grown up. Um, And so I, we read a premier, I read a premarital book and I, I, I think I honestly here and got through the first page, but, but I remember, remember the chapter one, which is don't have expectations. And I think that planted the seed 
that the Holy Spirit could then tap on my shoulder. You're having expectations because expectations lead to frustration and disappointment. And I think whenever I found myself getting really frustrated and really disappointed over small things, I think it was, are those expectations? Is that really a him thing or is that is that really a you thing? Is that a realistic need or are you wanting him to make you happy? Are you wanting him to anticipate what you're needing? Are you wanting him to assume and to read your mind? And 10 out of 10, it was a me thing and not a him thing. Okay. So I love that because something that you had read years before had been planted deep inside of you that was awakened during this struggling period. Expectations are so dangerous. They are a resentment waiting to be had. Yep. Yep. A lot of couples I th- that I meet with, and I tell them, like, this is my opinion. I have a trash can in my office. I'm like, you can throw your tissue there and you can throw what I have to say there. There's no expectations that you have to hold what I say. Hold it loosely. But, but I believe that expectations are typically a, a relationship killer. Now, we can have standards and we can have boundaries. But anytime I expect you should do this, you should do that, it's a chokehold. It is. It traps people. And there's no way out. And we hold people hostage with that, right? Yeah. Absolutely. I become God and you need to do things my way. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm in recovery, and oftentimes I will say I'm a recovering higher power. Like, because <laughs> I really did believe that if everybody around me could do what I wanted them to do, then everything would be fine. And that is, you know, and putting yourself in that position of control and authority and the one who has the answers is an addiction. It's another way of naming our, uh, not naming, but maybe also naming, maybe it's a way of naming and numbing our anxiety, right? And yet in so many ways, the more I look around me, the more I see that control is oftentimes lauded as a strength when really it can eat away at relationships and self-respect. You know, I, I know this as a recovering control person. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's something that God has been showing me. Um, you know, it's the 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 famous verse, 2 Corinthians 12, 9, that his that in my weakness he's made strong. And I was in my car, my son was in a band lesson, and so I was I had my I was doing a devotional and I read that verse and, and it said, uh, for when I am weak, then I am strong, period. And there was just something about that that irked me. I'm really big into identity. I believe that how we see ourselves is how we interact with the world. And God tells me I'm a masterpiece and that who I am is good. I made in his image. So I was like, I don't think my identity is weak. There's just something about that that really bothered me. So I, I began to do a word study. And I, of course, don't know the Greek that I found. But the gist of it was this, Karen, that whenever I operate in my own strength, I wear myself out. And so that word in the Greek for weak isn't like a moral weakness, but it's like a muscle weakness for when we're trying too hard. And that word strong isn't like a muscle strength, but instead it's a strength of influence. When we tap into his power, then we have the influence that we want. And I think 
that's what, when we're trying to control, I think we're wanting things to be our way, but then we're working in such a way in our own power that we wear ourselves out. And when we admit that, then we have all the power that we've ever wanted. That for me was like revolutionary. It's about living in the paradox, right? So um, we surrender, we talk about this in the recovery community, we surrender to win. We let go to receive. And one of the things that I know is humility is a healing superpower. And it's different from humiliation. Humility is, is tearing down the walls between God and myself so I can Step into my God-given gifts, no greater than anyone else, no less than anyone else, just taking up my God-given space. And I think one of the things that really plagues us as a culture is how many, how many of us human beings are doubling down on ego, right? And ego for me means that we're edging God out. And we put ourselves in the driver's seat as the controller of all things. Yeah. I mean, when you look at the Latin word for humility, it means grounded. And I think that's such a beautiful image that when we say this is this is all, all that I am, this the little bit I have I give to you, that grounds us. When we tap into his strength, it's grounding. But we don't want to do that. We want to be big, amazing, important people. And I know I, I personally grew up t- being told I could do anything and everything. I'm going to be a New York Times bestselling author. I'm going to like speak to millions of people. I mean, I just these big audacious dreams, which isn't necessarily bad, but it led me to focus on the performing versus the cultivating, the humility the surrender. And in an indirect way, it teed me up for failure because it put all of that expectation on my back versus partnering with God. And that's where I'm at right now in the season is I don't want to say anything. In fact, this is the the first interview I've done all year long. And I purposely felt like it was a season of silence. And I even debated canceling because I'm like, oh, I just don't feel ready to be out there. And I'm a big person. If you if you commit to something, you follow through, you don't cancel. So I, I feel like there's even something healing about this moment for me because it's the first moment that I've been able to talk other than my podcast and with clients. But it's been a season of silence of saying, until I can give something good from God, that's not about me and inflating my ego or my worth. I I so resonate, Melissa, with what you're saying and so appreciate and hold really sacredly your courage here in being so transparent. I too know what it's like to have seasons of silence and how us, those of us wired like an Enneagram too, we heal in solitude. We have to get in touch with that humility because we had such a prideful, over-exaggerated sense of our own importance and I'll speak for myself, because I felt so unworthy inside. Now, the public world never saw that, never saw that, but I knew that. And so it takes a tremendous amount of courage to say, you know, 
I'm going to surrender the outcome and I'm just going to put myself on the journey. So I'll write a book, but the outcome is not about being a New York Times bestseller. It is whatever it's going to lead us. You know, so I think it's a very different approach when we don't have a specific goal, but we're just along for the journey and we're moving our feet forward. Does that make any sense? It, it really does. Part of my, part of the season for me has entailed this book called Emotionally Healthy Spirituality by Pete Scazzaro. And I'm telling you, I've been saved since I was four. I grew up, I was born on a Saturday in church on a Sunday, went to seminary. I, I mean, I'm pretty well-versed in the Bible. And sometimes when you know a lot, it can work against you because you know a lot and there's not a lot of humility. And so there's been several quotes that has just like shaken me to my core. And one of those, he's talking about burnout and he's talking about burnout isn't, isn't a state of emptiness. It's a state of revealing the emptiness that you've been operating out of this whole time. Isn't that powerful? Okay. So burnout isn't a sense of emptiness. It's a revealing of the emptiness you've been operating out of this whole time. Oh, wow. That's pretty, that's worth sitting with. And that for me is like how I began my counseling journey (laughs) as a counselee, you know, as I brought that quote in and yes, I, I was empty, but that wasn't the problem. The problem was I was trying to give something that I never really had because I hadn't fully surrendered and said, here I am, God, I just want you to be used instead of doing like, here I am surrendering my being. And that's been an incredibly freeing, humbling, exciting, peaceful, scary journey. It's scary because I love performing. I love, I love the claps. I love the applause. And I don't know when or if I'll get that back, but I have to be content with knowing that my ultimate purpose isn't about the doing. It's about me connecting with my maker and helping those around me to connect with him well, mm. particularly my people, kids. Well, and I think there's people listening to this today that will really resonate with this. It almost feels prophetic to me in that there's listeners who will need to hear this message. So thank you for not canceling. Although I do believe that it's okay for us to cancel at times. Like it's okay for us to say- I do too. I can't if do I this. have to, I have to, but- Yeah. Well, I'm certainly glad you didn't. I'm grateful. I am too. Two questions before we wrap up. Um, Who would you save a seat for if you could save a seat for anyone? You know, there's so many amazing people that for me to save a seat, it would be somebody that I would want to know and that I could have a connection with. So I would save a seat for my grandfather. And if I could have one more talk with him, one more hug from him, that would be pretty special. He was a very important, he was a very important person, is a very important person to me. So I'm, um, I'm imagining that he has passed on, right? Uh-huh. And how old were you when that happened? I was 38, which is really incredible. Yeah. It, which is such a gift. And my kids knew him and they call him, um, great, great granddaddy. And I think they tack on that extra great because he was really great. And he was somebody who was so humble, almost an unhealthy humble. 
um, where it's not really humility. I'm sure you know the fancy word for it, but unhealthy humility. So I think he would be floored that we still miss him. And if we bring up his name, the kids cry. And I think it's a gift in a lot of ways that the grief that I miss him more today than when I first lost him because it was so good that he passed on. Like his quality of life was not good. Uh, But he loved talking to me about business. He loved talking to me about counseling, the change process. I mean, he was just like fascinated with, do you think people can change? Like how do marriages heal? Like, what does that look like? And he helped me start my business. When I opened my practice, I asked him like, what's the difference between an LLC and an S corp? And he, he broke out down every difference. And so he's a part of my practice, which is really phenomenal. What a legacy. So, so, yeah, so I, would, legacy. I would have another conversation with him. Yeah, I'd like to have a conversation with him, honestly. Um, okay, where can people find you? Because I'm having a sense that they'd like to find you. And I want, there's, you wrote this wonderful ebook that people will find on your website. So where can they find you? You can find me several different places. Uh, The easiest is at Melissa Clark Counseling. And that's my website. That's my Instagram, Facebook, Pinterest, all the places. And then I also host a weekly podcast show, Thrive Mental Health and the Art of Living Free, where I get to have amazing guests such as yourself. And we talk about mental health. We talk about what it means to be a whole person. So this year is a journey about our mental, spiritual, physical, relational, and emotional health. And that all was spurred on with me needing to get healthy. And so I'm just, like you said, just trying to share what God is doing in my life with anyone and everyone who will listen uh, every week. Yeah, you're such a gift to the world and you're really talking about tough stuff that we need to talk about. So thank you, Melissa for being here and for sharing very your welcome. heart and your soul. Thank you. Yeah, and that ebook is a free resource that you can get on my website. And we'll have all this in show notes. So in case anybody misses it, it's all there in writing. So thank you. Thank you, Karen. Your listening means so much, so please hit the subscribe button and join us for the next episode. To tune into the power of connection and transform your life at home and at work, please also get my book, The Connected Leader. It is available on Amazon and all online book retailers. And visit our page, connectedleaderbook.com. Stay connected.